Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host for today, Brady Josephson, and thank you for listening. So we're trying to take this 360-degree look at giving and generosity, talking to all different types of people from different spaces to better understand how we can improve, optimize, and grow generosity. And so today, I have a very interesting conversation with Nate Andorsky. He is the co-founder of an organization called Creative Science they are looking to use and leverage behavioral economics and behavioral science to the social impact and nonprofit space to lead uh, more people to take action, to make donations, to sign up, basically taking all that we know in terms of human behavior, how we make decisions, and how do we apply it to the nonprofit and social impact space and use it for good. So they're doing some interesting stuff. We get into identifiable victim. We get into some proportional impact and scarcity effect. We talk about some of those different things. And then we also get into things like machine learning and what we both see and uh, moving forward in the space of what will happen, what won't happen, what can we expect or look for uh, as, as technology and uh, our ability to learn becomes greater and happens at a much more rapid pace. So I will uh, leave it there. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back afterwards and enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. I said, welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Hi, Nate. Thanks for coming on the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Really great to be here. So we've had one chat before and it just went on and on. It was awesome. And so we said we had to have you on the podcast. So here we are. Exactly. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and continue our conversation. That's right. So before we dive into like behavioral science and behavioral economics and all the cool stuff that you guys are doing, why don't you just tell me and everyone listening a little bit more about you, but then how you ended up in this space or, or like where, where you are now? How'd you get there? Yeah, definitely. So my name is Nate and I've had the entrepreneurial tick since I was a young kid. I had my first uh, business actually in high school. It was called Easy Selling. I used to sell items for people on eBay and take a cut of what the, the item would sell for. And that's when I sort of first realized that the power of entrepreneurship and starting your own company. So I had a few other side businesses as I moved my way through high school and college and then after I graduated. Um, and my most recent company, Creative Science, we integrate behavioral science into building digital tools for nonprofits and social impact companies. And I started the company about four years ago, and I actually started it after I had gotten fired from my last job. And uh, at the time, it was, it was a traumatic experience being fired for performance. But looking back now, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it, it, it really forced me to go ahead and start my own company, which um, for quite some time, I had been contemplating doing it on a full-time basis, but I hadn't yet made the leap. Hmm. Can Can I ask you a little bit more about the 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 firing? Yeah, <laughs> uh, definitely. You know, optimizing teams is something that just this last year we've spent more time focusing on, and a sure. lot of it is not. You know, we experienced that on our side where we had awesome people, mm-hmm. but like it just wasn't working out for whatever reason. And you know, the whole dynamics of culture and team, and so. Can you share a little bit more about what it was or, you know, what, what you found, maybe even looking back of kind of what wasn't a good fit or what you learned from that? Yeah, so I think it was a few things. 
I had joined an organization called Startup Weekend, which you might be familiar with, but this was right after they had gone through a merger with a with a nonprofit called Startup America. And I was previously with Startup America and they closed their doors and then they combined with Startup Weekend and launched a new organization called Up Global. So I had applied for a new job at this new organization as a regional operations manager. And after about three months of being there, I remember it was a Wednesday afternoon and I was sitting at this kitchen table in my in this townhouse I had been renting, it was sort of run down and the kitchen table is actually a handy down for my parents. And I had a meeting booked on my calendar with my supervisor and also the VP of product, which I thought was really interesting because I had little to no interaction with his VP. So I thought either he wants to task me with some really important initiative, I'm doing something really good, or it's probably really bad news. And it was, it was the latter. Um, it, was, it was performance related, but I think what it really came down to was that I had a role that I didn't really want to have. And I think that they could see that through my performance. And one thing that I, I do credit startups with is that they're very fast moving, right? So I think they saw the writing on the wall and looking back now that I did too, is that this quote unquote relationship isn't going to work and there's no, there's no reason to prolong it and sort of drag it on. Let's just, let's just separate ways and move on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause I, I, um, before I started my company, I, I didn't quite get to the point where they let me go, but the writing was on the wall. Yeah, <laughs> like it just, yeah. it just, I think it's a thing with entrepreneurs. If you have more entrepreneurship within you, like you obviously do. And I do a little bit working for someone else in a job is tough. And so there's always kind of this, this friction. And for me, I was like, I got to get out of here. And I think they knew it. And so, you know, it's, it's a common thing. I think when you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who like, I had a job, didn't work out. I had right. to force me to do my own thing. So that's kind of right. kind of interesting. Exactly. Exactly. I can definitely uh, relate to that. And so then what about the, the nonprofit social impact side of things that you focus on with creative science? Uh, where did that come about? Yeah. So when I was at Startup America, and this was a three-year initiative launched with the support of the White House led by Steve Case to help spur entrepreneurial communities throughout the U.S., one of our founding partners was the Case Foundation. So we were housed in the Case Foundation offices. And this was my first exposure to, really my first exposure to the nonprofit slash social impact world. And um, I had somewhat of a technical background. So this was my first foray and realization into, I think, the power of technology um, and how it can really move organizations forward. And then one of the things that I also saw specifically to the nonprofit space is, um, sometimes in terms of adapting new technology, they seem to be a little bit behind the curve. Um, so that's where I saw this opportunity. I've always had a passion for technology and building things. And um, you know, what better place to do that, to build it for individuals and organizations that are helping do good in the world. Hmm. And so for, for people that maybe are, are less familiar, how do you define social impact? Social impact, in, in, in my opinion, is any business. It could be a for-profit or non-profit, but ha that has some social good mission to it, right? So they're not only trying to generate revenue or make a profit, but they're also trying to, this is very broad, but make the world a better place um, through the work that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, I worked for a company and people always define this as like a social impact kind of entrepreneurship space. And uh, our founder always had an issue with that because, you know, he was like every entrepreneur is providing societal benefit, like by mm -hmm. employing people. And so, you know, it's an early, you know, early days for that kind of industry and term. And so I think, yeah, you know, I've seen companies that 
I would not consider to be social impact. Right. Claim to be social impact because it's, you know, a buzzword. And it's like, well, we have, we have, we hire people. So we're having right. impact. It's like, I don't think that, you <laughs> yeah. know, the intent here. So it's just interesting to yeah. hear how everyone kind of defines how broad or narrow it actually is. Exactly. 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 Cool. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about creative science and particularly the, the neat stuff you guys are doing with behavioral economics and behavioral science mm-hmm. something that, you know, we connected over instantly. So t- talk a little bit about creative science maybe and just um, what you focus on and then, then sure. we'll get into more of kind of the application of things like behavioral science and economics. Yeah. So we work primarily with nonprofits and social impact organizations, but uh, we have a core belief at Creative Science that these digital experiences, so when I say digital experiences, it could be a website, a mobile app, AR, VR, anything that essentially lives online. But our belief is that these digital experiences at their core are actually human experiences. And with the advancement of technology, that these online experiences are becoming more humanized every single day. And at some point, it could even be hard to tell the online from the offline. If you've ever put on a VR headset, for example, sometimes it's hard to tell that you're in virtual reality. Um, and what we're looking to do is basically bridge the gap between the online and the offline. And in order to do that, we have to understand the human experience because you can build the most sophisticated technical product that exists in the market. But if you don't really understand how humans make decisions, what are the types of things that actually nudge somebody to do something or not do something? It can be an awesome technical product, but it can fall short. So we use behavioral science to first really get an understanding of what the human experience is, what really drives people to action. And then we layer in all of those theories and methodologies into all of the digital tools that we build. Cool. Cool. And so can you maybe define or give us some examples of like behavioral science or behavioral economics? Yeah. So it's really interesting that um, our decisions aren't made in a vacuum and it's estimated about 95% of our thoughts, emotions, and learnings actually happen on a subconscious level before we're even aware of that. Um, And when you're trying to engage with potential supporter, whether it's a donation or get support for your organization, the types of arguments and approaches that you would typically use, maybe the rational approach, um, giving somebody a reason to do something aren't always the most effective way. There's something called the hurt effect, which is digs into this idea that we tend to follow uh, the rest of the crowd. And there's a lot of ways that you can start to leverage these ideas and theories to get somebody to do something and support for your organization. Yeah. And I think the the key point around kind of behavioral science and economics, as we were discussing, particularly for the fundraising and nonprofit space, is it's so irrational. Mm-hmm. And, and when you talk to donors and ask them these kind of questions to know why do they do why they did, and you know, they, they, they have no idea <laughs> because right. so much of it is is happening in the subconscious and then they don't really possess the language to even articulate why they make a donation, it's so dangerous and risky for us to use that as like proof of what a donor does. Right. right? If we just give donors what they say they want, like we're screwed because <laughs> right. it's, not, it's not really what they want. So we have to use these other forms. And this is why we focus so much on experimentation of mm-hmm. what they actually do. And you guys are leveraging these kind of, you know, research concepts right. behind that. But we're working towards the same thing, basically you know, humans, uh, you can't really trust humans what they say. <laughs> you got to figure yeah, out what they do. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And that's what we find is that oftentimes you'll say one thing, but actually do another thing. And then often, because um, we do a lot of A-B testing and optimization too. And the behavioral econ gives us a really nice framework into what type of things that we should test, what different approaches that we should test. I mean, one of the most prominent ones is the identifiable victim effect, which 
I don't love the name of it, but I think it really hits home to how we process information, how we connect to a cause. And the theory behind it is that there is a tendency of individuals to offer greater aid when a specific person is observed under hardship rather than a group of people. Um, and we've seen this tendency actually decrease even when you add just a few more people. And it, it goes back to that saying that the death of a person is a tragedy, but the death of 30,000 people is a statistic. And I think one of the big things that we often see nonprofits struggle with is when do I use numbers? When do I use stories? If I tell somebody how large the problem is, 30 million people are at risk, then they'll know how big of an issue it is and they'll want to donate more. But we actually don't see that, right? People have a hard time wrapping their heads around figures and numbers and especially large statistics, things that you can't visualize in your head. So that's, that's just something interesting that we, we see time and time again. Yeah, and that that's one that I I reference a lot. You know, um, uh, it it lays the foundation for a lot of the personal storytelling and what that means. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a, a a slight, you know, adjacent to that is something like proportional impact effect, where it's totally rational because now we're just using numbers. Right. People would rather help a small number, uh, a smaller number, as long as it's a greater percentage of the total. Mm-hmm. Like you know, that that's another example of just how weird we get with numbers. And right. with all this conversation in the sector of like, we need impact, we need reporting, we need transparency. Right. The worry is that we're just cranking out numbers, but donors don't really know what those numbers mean or what it means when it comes to moving to action, at least. Sure. comprehend these numbers. 15 million out of 45 million, like who the heck cares? I don't know. Right. What, you know? Yeah. And I think it's an excellent point. I mean, we see the same thing, scope and sensitivity, right? So the rational mind would basically say that, the greater the problem, the more you'd want to give, right? But we actually see as the scope increases of the problem, the sort of support and donations don't don't correlate linearly to that. And the same sort of concept that you're talking about is that, you know, we we are human. We make decisions on on emotions and giving people logic-based type of information in this specific scenario, even if you have the numbers and the data, they that that isn't really necessarily what drives someone to take action, especially when you're talking about social impact and nonprofits. Are there some kind of um, common patterns that you see about how humans make decisions, particularly around giving, that kind of maybe applies to a bunch of these different concepts, whether it's identifiable victim or scope and sensitivity? Or is there kind of like an overarching, uh, you know, key point that people could kind of walk away from or that you found at least? Yeah. So I think one really interesting thing is this this idea of anchoring. Um, And this is specifically relevant when we talk about donations and that when you make a purchase decision or donation, you don't make that decision in a box. Um, Our mind tends to anchor our decisions on other values. So an example of this, there's a study from the science of giving and they used um, two different phone scripts. And the first one, they basically um, just asked for a donation, right? The other one, they, they just simply referenced a previous donation of another donor. So they said, you know, we had a previous donor who gave $75. How much would you like to give today? We had a previous donor who gave $100. How much would you like to give today? And what they saw is they increased that, that reference point. Uh, people's, their average donation increased. They didn't realize they were doing it, but they were anchoring what their expected donation was on the anchor that was being provided by the, 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 the telethon. So it's, it's interesting that we see this study replicated again and again and again. And Dan Ariely actually has this in one of his books, about the economist, um, same sort of thing is that when we're making a decision and we're deciding how much to give or what price to purchase, we're, we're weighing other options that are presented to us, but also what other people have done to determine what is the optimal amount that I should give. Yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite 
uh, studies and because a lot of giving has traditionally been like behind closed doors and you don't mm-hmm. share amounts and you know there's kind of this Puritan aspect to it right but when when you read that type of study and then especially when you look at the rise of things like crowdfunding nowadays in terms of how it's done and you kind of peel back the layers you're like there's a lot of kind of social influence behavioral economic type stuff embedded oh, yeah. in crowdfunding some oh, of it yeah. is intentional some of it I think is accidental right. and now they've kind of reflect oh crap like look at this right. But right. when you when you go through those studies and you go like, we are social creatures way more than we'll ever admit. And when we yeah. know what other people, strangers, like right. no idea who that person before you right. gave, right. It, should have, it should have no bearing on how much you give, but it absolutely does. Yeah. You and know? The, the interesting thing too is even if you read about these cognitive biases and you're aware of them, it's, it's, it's like optical illusions. You still do them. You still fall into these right. traps. <laughs> so it's, and it's the way that our mind works. And like you said, we're social creatures. And that's one of the biggest things that we see is this idea of social norm theory and the herd effect and what other people are doing has a really, really big impact on whether we will or won't do something. Yeah. Yeah. The, the social influence is one of the big takeaways as I kind of read your stuff for a science of giving or kind of those theories applied. I think the other one that, that I've seen, I'd be interested to know, know your take is that uh, giving is a lot more selfish oriented or it's a lot more about us than, mm-hmm. than donors will ever say. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you do things like overhead covering where a hundred percent of their donation will go to the cause, even if that cause has higher overhead, like they don't care as long as it's covered. Right. It's about my donation and how far like it goes and things right. like you know, matching. And I think that plays into identifiable victim. I don't care if it helps less people. I want to know who I'm helping. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's kind of selfish, but it's like, this is how we make decisions of how is this right. beneficial to me? And again, donors will never tell you that stuff. Right. Because right? they want, right. oh, it's all about them. And it's about the cause. And but right. you look at these studies and it's like, ah, we're pretty, we're pretty self-motivated. Uh, right. To, to make these decisions. What do you think about that side of things? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're spot on. And it's really interesting if you dig into even the psychology behind it of why people give. And one of the things that I read, and this is from the science of giving too, talks about that there's, when there is a problem that you're trying to overcome um, with a nonprofit, trying to help the nonprofit, there is a, like a psychological stress that you have. And by giving to that nonprofit or supporting it, you're helping to resolve that personally for you, right? So some of that motivation and how altruistic is that? Essentially trying to make yourself feel better through supporting this nonprofit, sort of what you're talking about, right? And what is the motivation behind becoming involved and giving money? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a whole conversation about can you actually make a charitable gift that's truly altruistic, right? And some people go, no, because you always get a benefit. Right. Another side is, well, who cares if you get a benefit if your intent is to not get the benefit? Right. And at some level you go like, who cares? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I mean, you know, of our missions to grow generosity is like, I don't care why you give to some degree, like you get more people giving you give for social status. Fine. Mm -hmm. You give, you give for altruists. Fine. That's how you give. And we just need to be more sensitive that people give for a variety of different reasons. Yeah. And how do we identify and use it? Right. And I, I think that's, that's another really good point is, and you talked about segmentation and also with the rise of sort of data science and machine learning is starting to really segment your donor base and supporter base and figure out, you know, what are the motives behind the individuals that want to give or should give or support your, your nonprofit? Because how you talk to one person isn't the same way that you talk to another person, because as you've seen from the research that you've done is that 
people are motivated and driven by different factors and being able to speak to those is really important. You mentioned uh, machine learning there, and I saw there was a post on on your site. Can you can you expand a little bit about that? Like, what is machine learning, and how do you see that being applied to kind of the generosity space? Sure, sure. So, machine learning is one of those other very prevalent buzzwords, um, <laughs> right? But for for in, in simplest terms, the way that computer software and technology has always been built is through a programmatic way, right? So, you tell it to do something. The basic concept behind machine learning is instead of telling the technology to do something, it's learning from past behaviors. So a very simplistic example of this is, let's say, for example, I wanted to scrape or take all of the Amazon reviews and try to predict from what somebody wrote in an Amazon review what to start with the star rating is, right? So there's two ways to do that. The first way is I could go and I could just write a bunch of code to look for certain words and say, every time you see this, this, or this, then it could be a rating of three or four or five, right? The other way is you take in the entire data set, all of that text, and you put it into uh, a machine learning algorithm. You build a model. I uh, use natural language processing. You basically figure out what are the correlations between the type of text that is written and the stars that people leave, right? So instead of writing the algorithm, you're basically building a probabilistic model with that information to then make future predictions. So machine learning is basically taking existing data and based on the correlations and the trends in that data, trying to make predictions about what's going to happen in the future. Awesome. And how do you see that being applied to like your work or a nonprofit's work or the generosity space? Right. So on a very basic level, one of the things that you could do, and this is technically, and you and I actually even talked about this, is a predictive model is saying somebody who's given two times in the last year is more likely to give. So I should approach them for donations first. It's a very simplistic version of it, right? But you could get really sophisticated with it. And one of the things that machine learning really excels at in data science is starting to find correlations that aren't relevant, or aren't, I shouldn't say relevant, but aren't known to the human eye, right? So, for example, we figured out that anybody making between forty dollars to $50,000 that is a male and has two kids and lives in Texas gives, on average, $35 every two months. So starting to target that specific segment. So that's really, really becomes really powerful is when it starts to pick up trends and identify trends and correlations that you and I couldn't figure out by just looking at a spreadsheet, for example. Right, right. Yeah, um, I was recently at the Unbounce conference and they talked about AI, which mm-hmm. you know, the overlap of AI machine learning, I think is quite a lot. But they've got some new tools or programming that basically will help you run A-B tests, but you don't need to set it up. Like when humans right. run these tests, like we have to have a thesis, we're looking to lift one thing, we manipulate the test, but we're, we're not understanding all the different variables that are at play. Like we can exactly. only, you know, handle and compute so much, whereas these machines can basically, like we can still have our thesis, but they can run so many variants and show so right. many different snippets that we could never do, right? And right. so the rate of learning and the pickup uh, is just insane of what we could actually figure out. Exactly. And what's even... Uh, really powerful about it is as you feed the the model more data, it becomes smarter, right? Because you can begin to fine tune the algorithm and the model that you've built. So unlike an algorithm that you write, once you write it, that's the algorithm, you've got to go in and actually tweak it to make it better. By feeding it more data and complete and continuing to to tweak the parameters and the feature sets, it becomes smarter and smarter over time and more and more or ideally becomes more and more accurate. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so I think one of the applications, um, well, there's two that I can think of for sure, just as it relates to giving. One is like, which offer do you show, right? So right. is it, you know, food in Uganda or is it country-based, you know, based on maybe what they viewed in the past, or if it's a first-time visitor, you could maybe match it up with similar profiles to other visitors and right. say, hey, they, they'll probably like this kind of thing, right. right? We can do something like that. Or the other one is even just amount. Like typically mm-hmm. amounts have been generated by kind of recency, frequency, monetary amount, like what's been done in the past and things like that. Right. But, you know, maybe we can use more sophisticated models to say we should suggest a gift of $75 or right. $25 or something like that. Right. And I think you're spot on with giving. I mean, one of the things that, you know, and Amazon is, is famous for this is a recommendation engine. So what that does is it basically builds a profile of you and then it finds people that are similar to you and then suggest items based on that profile match, right? So like you said, with giving is when you log into a platform, for example, those recommendations are based on past history of other people like you that have done something. So you're more likely to do that. And that's where it can become really powerful rather than just sort of sitting in a room and saying, oh, this is what I think this person might like. It's actually based on historical data. Right. So now some of this stuff, maybe people are listening and like, this seems crazy or like my nonprofit, you know, could never use this or never benefit from it. How do you, how do you, what's like the practical implication for like an average charity or nonprofit or fundraiser or something like that to, to use machine learning? How would they benefit from this? Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, the first thing is you've got to collect the data, right? So they always say garbage in, garbage out is the first step. And you can build a very sophisticated model, but if the data isn't good, it's not going to make a difference. So um, starting to figure out a way to at least collect data about your donor base, you know, name, obviously email, those types of things, but other demographic information. And this is really important because the things that you think are important are probably important. So donation amounts, but there's going to be other demographic information that you're going to want to start to collect. Because if at some point in time you want to start to create models around your data, having that other demographic information about who your donor is, is going to start to give you insights into um, the way that you should build these models. And then you can throw it into an Excel sheet and at a minimum, at least start to just create some visualizations, right? You know, what are the different segments of your donor base? What's the average gift amount for certain donors? To at least get a sense of, okay, what does my current donor base look like? And then once you have that, then you can start to figure out oh, where are the next steps. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, this is a totally another conversation and uh, we shouldn't go down it just for time's sake, but, you know, looking into the future, I'd be interested to know what you see kind of in the future, but I do see a potential for like an Amazon-ish uh, solution for the nonprofit space because when you, once you aggregate the data across, right. you know, then, then they're, they're way more data rich than any one organization can be, right? Mm-hmm. There's all these platforms kind of competing, but we're already seeing this with, you know, donor advised funds and third party donations of being able to collect and send. Right. You know, like what, what's to stop a consumer or a platform like uh, Amazon for donations to like fully take over and, and do all that, you know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and to that point, one of the challenges with this modeling is just collecting the data and you'll see a lot of marketing automation software, for example, HubSpot, all of the pieces run on their platform. And they're very specific about that. One of the reasons is because if it runs on their platform, they can easily collect the data. I mean, that's one of the challenges that we see with nonprofits is even if they want to do this, they don't have the, they don't have the pieces in place to collect the data. So 
I, I think you're also going to start to see a rise of software platform SaaS products that are plug and play, but instead of just being a donation processing system, they're starting to really collect a lot of that data, analyze the data, and then spit it back to you in a way that you can make informed decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think you're right. I think that's been a, a bit of a miss, uh, like in the, in the software space or, or play nicely with others. Right. So if you're going to yeah. do one piece, then, you know, like HubSpot integrates with tons of these tools that you use to market right. so that helps. Right. You got a central spot, whereas a lot of software in the nonprofit space either doesn't play nicely with others or they only do one function. And so it makes this, you know, automation or really knowing donors and user behavior. You've got, you know, some of it's in your database, some of it's in your like Google Analytics, and like it's impossible, you know, yeah. in any sort of automated way. So that's right. a big challenge. Exactly. What, exactly. what are some other challenges you've encountered? Maybe not necessarily on the technology side, but just like implementing this more scientific approach. Is there some kind of hesitancy or pushback of like, this seems like, you know, wishy-washy pie in the sky or like, have you had any struggles with, you know, getting clients or communicating this? Um, For the most part, no. I mean, I've definitely gotten some pushback from, I do a lot of speaking engagements on this topic. So one of the, I wouldn't say it's common, but I've heard it before is, you know, this is manipulative, right? (laughs) Right. Which I can see where they're coming from, but my response to that is is sort of twofold. Number one is there's no such thing as a nudgeless choice, right? There's no such thing of any way that that an option is presented to us in some form or fashion where nudge do one thing over the other. The other thing is we're not. I'm not trying to get somebody to do something they don't want to do. Yeah, I'm just trying to make it easier for them to do the things that they want to do. And this is the way that the brain works. This is the way that we make decisions. And if you can work against it, but you're working against human nature. <laughs> yeah. Or you can start to leverage these theories and understand them and embrace them to help you move your mission forward. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Because I've when I've talked about some of this stuff too, I get that same question. Like, isn't this manipulative? And to, I've gotten to the point where I go, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Just yes. But like what people are getting the crap right. manipulated out of them every single day. Right. Right. Shoes they don't need, trucks they don't need, all this other stuff. Why can't we manipulate the crap out of people to give money away? And it's right. not like, to your point, it's not like we can coerce their wallets open right. and money flies out and they're like, no, right. you know, like that doesn't happen. People right. only do what they want to do. And if we're not using every single piece of data, whatever we have at our disposal, yeah. like, yeah, I will manipulate the crap out of donors. Like, why yeah. wouldn't we, you know? It's, yeah. it's just weird that we have that mindset. I think it comes from a good place of like, we don't want to be, you know, scammy and we don't want to, sure. you know, it, I think it comes yeah. from a good place, but I do think it's a little indicative of a mindset that exists in the space that is kind of uh, opposed to innovation and growth, to be honest. You right. know, it's right. kind of, um, it's a little glimpse in there. It's funny <laughs> that, that you get asked that same, same thing. Um, so go ahead. No, the other challenge with nonprofits, and I can totally understand this, is they tend to be a little bit more risk averse um, just because this, in, in the private industry, the private sector, there's, there's a little bit more of a culture of sort of um, taking risks. And if something doesn't work out, it's okay, even though we spent some money. It's a little bit harder in the nonprofit space because donors, like you said, like, if you're a donor and you give $5,000, you don't want it to go to some project the nonprofit tried and it failed. You want to go to helping the cause. But in the long term, it's those types of risks and those type of innovations and investments that can pay off 10, 20, 30, or 40 fold. So even though you're saving money in the short term, you could be stunting the growth of, growth of your organization in the long term by not taking some of these chances and trying some new things out. 
Yeah. I mean, that, that's a whole nother podcast about risk aversion yeah, and the, yeah. the impact of donors and situations. So we'll save that for another one. Um, I, I want to talk briefly about kind of like growth or generosity or get your view of kind of how do you define generosity? I think uh, something that we're trying to ask everyone and try to see how you define it because mm-hmm. it's not always easy to define. So how do you define generosity? And then where do you see things going in the next, you know, five, 10 years in terms of trends you see or, or where you see it moving? Yeah, so I think the generosity question, that's a really good one. And I think for me, it's figuring out what you do well and, and determining in some way that you can contribute that back to the world. So it could be donations in terms of money, but I think skill sets, I think figuring out in some capacity, whether it's in your day-to-day job or at a volunteer opportunity or something you do outside of your day-to-day, but figuring out what it is that you do well and, and being able to contribute that back to the world in some form or fashion to, to do good. Yeah, I like that. I was uh, <laughs> I was actually just at the dentist and I'm in the chair and uh, he's like, what do you do? I said, oh, I work charities. He mentioned some study about overhead. And he's like, my wife doesn't like giving to overhead. And I was like, well, did you know overhead's like garbage? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like in the dentist chair, having this debate with my dentist about how useless those metrics are. Uh, and then eventually he's just like, you know, how I like to give, I like to give my time and my talents. And you know, that was him. He's like, I'm a dentist. There's people who can't afford dental services. And so he's using his skills, you know, to help people. And so I like that, that definition of generosity that you have. Um, and where do you see it moving or where do you see the kind of the next thing beyond, you know, creative science and behavioral economics everywhere? Uh, in this space in general or? Yeah, in general. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's been a really interesting convergence of the private sector and the nonprofit sector over the last five or 10 years with the rise of impact investing. And we're starting to see, like you said, social good models being built into for-profit companies. I think that's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out and this idea of the triple bottom line. I also think that for our generation specifically, on the whole, we tend to be a little bit more mission-driven, right? So we want to work with companies that are actually doing good. So that trend um, continues. And then just with technology and machine learning and technology is becoming to is getting to a point where I guess for good and for worse, it's becoming very, very sophisticated and starting to learn really about individuals and how individuals operate and being able to use that to to help nonprofits engage in more of a meaningful way, I think is going to be really interesting to see how that plays out over the next decade or so. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I think it's a really, really interesting time, which puts you and creative science in a really interesting space at, a, at mm-hmm. this very interesting time. So, um, I mean, we could talk on and on and on, but I got to let you go. So, where, where can people learn more about you and creative science in your work? Sure. So, www.creativescience.co is our website. There's a lot of really good information and resources on there. Uh, we have a blog and a newsletter, so sign up for that. And then also, if anyone wants to continue this conversation offline, feel free to email me. My email is nate at creativescience.co. And then I'm also on Twitter, Nate Andorsky. Awesome. And we'll be sure to uh, send that out in the show notes as well. So thanks, Nate, for taking this time and enlightening us on kind of this new-ish thing of behavioral economics and how it applies to nonprofits. And Sure. Happy to. Thanks again for having me. This has been a really awesome conversation. All right. See ya. Hey, Brady here, back to the interview and episode in a second. But if you've ever been looking to up your online fundraising game, we may have something for you. We've been working in the world of online training and courses for a while, and we decided, hey, what if we did this offline and in person? 
So we've launched these online training workshops where you can actually get certified in things like donation and landing pages, email fundraising, and Facebook advertising. So if you're interested in upping your online fundraising game and you're interested in uh, getting certified in any one of these areas or all of these areas, you can learn more about our uh, in-person training and workshops at nextafter.com slash training. That is nextafter.com slash training. Hopefully, we'll see you in a session in person sometime soon. Back to the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nate Andorsky from Creative Science and found something of interest. Uh, that whole conversation, there's a few conversations in there that we could have gone further down, whether it's the risk aversion nonprofits, which I'm sure will come up a lot on this uh, podcast and in future conversations. And that kind of manipulation, I do think that's an interesting comment that he's received and I received where it almost seems, you know, underhanded or using the dark arts in, a, in an evil way to, to manipulate donors. And uh, I would just challenge you if, you, if that's what you think, I'd love to hear from you if, if you think I'm wrong, that we should be okay with manipulating donors. Um, but I would also challenge you to say what's, what's so bad in using what we know to manipulate situations to get donors to take action. Again, I don't think we can force donors to do things that they don't want to do. No matter how good of a marketer or fundraiser you are, you simply can't make them do something that they don't want to do. So anyways, if you have questions at all about what we talked about or you want to push back or something, you can email us at podcast at nextafter.com. We love to hear your thoughts and we'll be coming out with episodes each and every week. So if you like this uh, or maybe just didn't hate it, that's fine. Uh, We'd love you to subscribe. You can do that by searching The Generosity Freak Show on iTunes or Google Play, wherever you get your pods, just search for The Generosity Freak Show. That's it for me and us for this week. Thanks again for listening and uh, see you next week. Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kuchuriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week 